Hello and welcome to GradCast. Back in August, myself, Roger Hudson, and my co-host, Yimin Chen, were on location at the Western University Graduate Symposium on Music 2017. And over the next 30 minutes, you'll get to hear two different interviews from students from across the United States and Canada speaking about their research on music. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to GradCast. My name is Roger, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Yemen. Hi. Hello there, Yemen. And we're also joined by Elizabeth Mitchell, a uh, PhD student here at Western University. How are you, Elizabeth? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. And, and Elizabeth was a presenter here at WUGSUM 2017, the Western University Graduate Symposium on Music. Would you like to speak a little bit about what you came here to talk about today, Elizabeth? Yeah, absolutely. So I came here to talk about um, a portion of my ongoing dissertation research here at Western. Um, the portion I spoke about today was a, a case study that involves a, um, a summer day camp for children with physical and developmental disabilities. Uh, this is a program that's sponsored by Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, where I'm employed, and also by um, Kids Ability, which is a local child development center in Waterloo. And um, this Creative Arts Day Camp gives children with disabilities the opportunity to participate in music and dance and art and drama. And the portion that I was looking at specifically today was um, the performance component of this program. So at the end of the camp week, the kids get to go on stage at the recital hall at Laurier and, and sing and make music and play instruments and dance and act. And um, I did some interviews with some kids and their families about the impact of that performance event specifically. So that's what I was talking about today. That seems like a fantastic way to uh, spend the day. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. great. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what music therapy is? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and I didn't really say that in my preface. So I am a music therapist, and so I will start by clarifying that the camp I was talking about today mm -hmm. at Wagsam isn't actually, technically speaking, an instance of music therapy. It's more okay. a community music or community arts type of event. I think there's lots of blurred lines between the two things, but um, important to be really clear that this, this is a day camp that's um, about creative music and community music, but not specifically about music therapy. But I do work as a music therapist, and uh, music therapy is about the use of musical elements and music within a therapeutic relationship to um, hopefully facilitate change in an individual or a group or a community. Um, and music therapy can be used to work with clients on a variety of goals. So maybe for one, for someone it might be an emotional goal, maybe a communication goal, a physical health goal, a social relationship. So it really depends on the person, but um, kind of recognizing that human beings have used music for therapeutic purposes since the dawn of our species. And so music therapists try to bring that into healthcare settings um, to increase wellness. And um, for me, like at the bottom line, music therapy is about the idea that like making music is good for people, you know? So that's like, right. a, that's a really, <laughs> um, that's a bold kind of look at it, but it is a, you know, a health profession in Canada and um, music therapists do a degree in music therapy and then have to do a, a thousand hours of supervised clinical work before they can be certified and so yeah. So how do you use music therapy uh, in your practice and in what ways are it is it therapeutic for the people that you're working with? 
Well, again, so this is separate from my works on presentation this morning, but in terms of my current work, um, I'm the music therapist in residence at Wilfrid Laurier University, and a part of that position is that I do music therapy work at um, Homewood Health Centre in Guelph, which is an adult mental health facility. And in, in mental health, I would say that, I mean, there's lots of benefits to musical engagement. I think the biggest one is music's nonverbal properties, so that music allows people that maybe struggling to use words or just tired of using words or just feel like they have um, you know really intense emotional experiences that are hard to express um, music provides them with another vehicle to to regulate emotion to express emotion to identify emotion an outlet. Um, yeah an outlet totally and also to um, to connect with others in a different way I think any musician who's ever um, played in a small ensemble especially like a jazz musician or if you played in a chamber group or maybe sung in a small acapella group that you know that there's a type of musical communication that happens between people that is really different than a conversation mm -hmm. even though it might be conversational so music therapy also allows I think for interpersonal communication and uh, feeling like heard and witnessed and uh, in a different way than just talking to a therapist does. And it seems like your research, especially your topic for your uh, presentation today, was about musical identities and the personal identities that uh, develop through performance with children uh, for children uh, with disabilities. Yeah. So um, the identity seems to be a, a, a big structure for development there. Yeah. So I chose that identity focus for my dissertation research, um, and one of one of the case studies in my dissertation research is is more of a music therapy setting and this one that I talked about today as I said is more of a community music setting but in both settings looking at identity development um, the idea that what I was looking to investigate was um, just like seeing yourself as musical or capable musically just how does that impact personal identity as well so does it matter if um, a child or an adolescent who never has had the opportunity to perform or to develop musical skills because maybe their their disability or their mental illness has excluded them from being able to participate in music education or being able to perform. There's lots of barriers, of course, for kids with disabilities to access the same types of opportunities as other children. And so that experience of getting to do it and do it well and getting an audience, you know, Mm -hmm. affirming you and validating you how does that change how you see yourself musically and then in turn does that affect how you see yourself on a personal level as well oh cool mm -hmm. so can you give us an idea of uh, what sort of age range these kids are at the camp and what sort of activities they were doing for sure so at this camp so the camp is called arts express and the children that attend arts express are between 6 and 14 years old and um, the camp day, they have the children have a chance to participate in um, drama, dance, music, visual art. Also, get to swim and play outside and do you know camp kind of mm -hmm. stuff as well. And um, and then and also spend time preparing for this final performance that I talked about. And I'll just note too, just a kind of a plug for this Arts Express program. It's sponsored by the Faculty of Music at, at Wilfrid Laurier University and um, the camp leaders are actually university students. So it's actually a university course okay. where um, university students sign up for the course and they actually do a huge amount of the planning for the week of camp so that the camp counselors are university students, which is a cool, it's a bit of an aside, but it's a cool element to the program mm -hmm. as well. So there's the university students are getting to really um, facilitate this um, these types of arts experiences for the children at the camp, which is very meaningful. Also, so you talked about having these kids um, 
do performances for audiences. Mm-hmm. What sort of performances uh, are you talking about here? Yeah, so at the end of the camp week, the children do a performance at the recital hall at Laurier. And camp week is always themed around, you know, some kind of some kind of bigger theme. So it might be like when you're under the sea or traveling across Canada or um, last year it was um, books and um, mm-hmm. like popular children's authors and themes from children's books um, as examples. And um, so the performance is always loosely based around that type of a theme where there's like some kind of really loose plot like the children are trapped in a library and they're going to like different areas and like meeting characters from the different books or something. or. Um, something like that. And so the performance has this loose plot and as they meet, as the children maybe meet certain characters or certain people, um, they they might, they, there's always a dance component, there's a music component, so let's mm-hmm. show them the dance that we learned or, you know, sing our group song or maybe play on drums or other musical instruments to evoke a certain mood or atmosphere. So there's um, there's kind of a, a plot and then there's dance and music um, integrated into that. So it's a, it's certainly a, it's a drama, dance, music kind of whole thing, the performance. And um, every child at the camp, usually about 40 children that attend the camp, with a huge range of diagnoses. It's an inclusive camp, so it's mm-hmm. not at all that you have to have a diagnosed disability to attend. Um, most do. Um, and it's a huge range. So mm-hmm. some um, children with physical disabilities, some with developmental disabilities. And it's a huge um, priority that every single child has at least one kind of moment where they're like, the shining star on stage. Oh, wow. So they have one, maybe they just have one line. Yeah. Or maybe they have like a moment in the dance where they they get to like be in the front and shine or make some kind of musical sound that is really important. So mm-hmm. we do, you know, no matter what the ability is. And so if I mean if that's a child who maybe doesn't use words at all to communicate, that they have a sign that they can hold up to read their line, so to speak, you know, so that every child has a moment to shine within that performance. Oh, cool. That, that's wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm curious if there's any uh, particular benefits of the performing aspect as opposed to uh, doing some of these music um, things one-on-one with a teacher. Thank you for that question. Yeah, so I would say that yes, there there's totally is, and uh, that's a question that I get asked Actually, quite a lot about what what the difference what the difference is, and because um, there's risks of performance too, right? There's risks. What if the audience doesn't mm-hmm. like it, or what if you know? There's a lot of anxiety um, for, sure. for anyone performing, especially you know? for certain individuals with developmental disabilities. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, taking all those risks into account, I would I would argue that the benefits certainly outweigh those risks, um, almost almost in every case, um, and. For me, the biggest thing is the interaction with the audience, and that's something that you can't, you can't, you can't capture that in a in a room working one on one, or even mm-hmm. in a small group in the same way. That experience of, um, yeah, knowing that the encouragement and from a therapeutic lens, um, kind of feeling validated, feeling affirmed, mm-hmm. feeling witnessed. That, cool. yeah, yeah, and we have a real. I mean, this, the audience. Uh, this performance is really, I mean, you know, I mean, it's open to anyone, but really that they're, they're bought in walking through the door, right? But so they're a really special audience and non, likely non-critical, mm-hmm. um, but also the kids shine and are like 
I think from anyone's perspective, are amazing on stage. And we really work to create an environment where they can really shine. And so um, it's not it's not a witnessing by the audience that in turn, and coming back to the identity thing, I think this is a really important part of the research that identity is formed in relationship to other people. And so the narrative that you tell yourself about who you are is always impacted by the perspectives of people around you. And for me, this is really important, and especially that these kids get to perform at a university recital hall. Who gets to perform on stage at a university? Music students, professional musicians, people with a certain amount of training. Right. And so to put these kids on that stage really subverts who normally gets access. And suddenly the professors are in the audience, and it's these kids on stage. And uh, I think that recognition is, then it, it then in turn impacts how they see themselves, which is really at the heart of it, I think. Music has so much to give, uh, and I just think it's such a, a wonderful way to uh, combine uh, for therapeutic uses. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Elizabeth, uh, for sharing your research and your interests with us today. Uh, this has been a, a production of the Society of Graduate Students. My name is Roger Hudson, and I'm here with Yimin Chen. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Hello and welcome to GradCast. We are here on location at the Western University Graduate Symposium of Music, WUGSOM 2017. Uh, I'm Yemin and I'm joined with my co-host Roger. Hi there, how you doing? No, nice. And we have as our guest for this segment, Martha. How are you doing, Martha? I'm doing well, how are you? Oh, awesome. And you've made a trip all the way over here from the City University of New York, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, and so you're a graduate student there. And you came to give a presentation on uh, something called vamp songs? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of a funny funny name, and it's not an official name in any way because uh, the word vamp is short for vampire. And right. um, it comes from, it's a colloquial uh, term for a seductive and predatory woman. And it comes from the 1915 film A Fool There Was, starring uh, the silent film actress Theda Barra. And the story is based on a poem by Rudyard Kipling called mm -hmm. The Vampire. And it's basically the tale of this upright gentleman uh, who gets an ambassadorship to Britain from the United States. And he has this lovely little family. And he becomes seduced by Theta Barra's character, who's this you know, dark-haired, um, very sexy, exotic-looking woman. And she's only listed or credited in, the, credited in the film as the vampire. She doesn't have a name. She's just the vampire. Wow. And the film was very scandalous for the time, before um, the final scene where she kisses him and it was very um, explicit for that time for 1915 mm -hmm. um, so the term vamp was derived from Theta Barra's character and it's just been used as a word for a seductive and predatory woman since then it's sort of fallen out of fashion um, since the post 20s era it, you still hear women described as vamps but by 1929 they weren't writing songs about vamps anymore um, and so all this to say, the vamp songs that I'm talking about are Tin Pan Alley songs that took for a subject women that were, that were referred to as vamps. Very interesting. I understand that your research also uh, relates to male anxiety and uh, the different roles of women. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yes. So 
the <laughs> the uh, resurgence of the vampire in literature in the um, late 19th and early 20th century is fascinating. And um, in my paper, I argue that if you look at a lot of the rhetoric from, I mean, I talk a bit about Schopenhauer and I look at some etiquette manuals from um, the late or the mid 19th century, but you can trace the sort of um, male anxiety over powerful women all the way back to the dawn of Western history. Um, I was actually just chatting with someone about how I was really upset that there are, uh, when I read, first read about um, the demon Lilith from, she was in the Old Testament, but she was expunged, mm -hmm. and now the only references to her are in um, some, some Hebrew scriptures. And basically Lilith was Adam's first wife. She was made from the dirt like Adam, and she was kicked out of heaven or the Garden of Eden because she didn't want to be subservient to Adam. So sort of created and saw herself as an equal, yes, rather than something that came of him and was sort of designed to serve Adam. That's correct. And yes. is, is this actually in the Bible? Uh, no, I don't know if um, they just decided to not put in anything about Lilith when they were assembling the Christian Bible mm -hmm, that sure. we have today, yeah. um, or if she might have evolved out of some Sumerian goddesses, uh, mm. because there's uh, the, the demon goddess Ishtar. Who's the goddess of war and sexuality? So, <laughs> how do you think some of these uh, long-standing cultural um, gods and goddesses and these uh, somewhat fictional tales, I guess we could say, um, might make their way into popular culture uh, that, that you're studying today? Hmm. I would say that they never really left popular culture. To be fair, um, so. And, Going back or jumping ahead, nineteen hundred years, nineteen uh, <laughs> hundred years, um, in the Victorian era, there was a lot of, how would you say, unstable um, area in the discussion of sexuality and gender roles. Um, so when you, uh, in eighteen ninety seven, for example, that was the year that Dracula was published, which is the most well known um, manifestation of the vampire in mm -hmm. Western culture. Uh, but that was the same year that the Kipling poem upon which A Fool There Was was based. And um, Dracula has been read by most literary critics as having in it um, a manifestation of female sexuality as either totally anesthetized or like completely bestial. So I don't know if you guys have read the story, but um, in, in the tale, the vampire comes from, uh, Dracula comes from Eastern Europe to England, and he um, he kills the character Lucy Westenra, who's this like ideal, angelic British woman. She's very like subservient and almost not there at all, except for just being the person that faints proper at the proper time. Mm -hmm. um, but then after she's killed by Dracula, she uh, is reborn as a vampire that preys on children. So she's just like the antithesis of uh, what men want a proper woman to be, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's it's amazing. Um, so. so where where do women uh, begin to be referred to as vamps along these lines? Um, so the term was used as a as a, a slang word for for promiscuous women. I think starting around 1915 with Theta Vara, she was the one who really created the vamp role. And then um, we have the the dawn of like the modern recording industry and just like this sort of mass media. And the songs that proved most profitable, of course, were novelty songs and love songs. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you, of course, you see like a slew of um, songs about like you know the good girl trope, um, and the covers have on them these very lovely looking women with like Gibson girls or just you know the, the girl you bring home to mom. 
Um, but then you have the vamp, who's usually overdressed or very much underdressed. And in the songs, uh, she's always talked about as uh, vamping everybody, which is sort of a slang for seducing them. Um, and also in the songs, there's this characteristic that she's, uh, she uh, delights in causing pain to her male victims. Um, however, in some of the earlier songs, such as Sally Green, uh, The Village Vamp, uh, they extend the sort of rural novelty trope, which is also present in the songs, to include uh, Sally as performing acts of bestiality. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pretty outlandish for the time, I'm guessing, for sure. It was, but uh, so I would argue, though, that by um, including a verse like, um, you should see her raise the dickens, she's been vamping all the cows and chickens. Um, <laughs> wow. That they're just trying to undermine uh, the vamp's agency. She's somebody who has assumed her power, and people don't like that. This seems like it's a form of... Uh, trying to stop out uh, the uprising of uh, the female role in society, in a sense. Yes, uh, you are absolutely right. Um, at this time, we do have to remember that this was shortly after the ratification of the 19th Amendment in the United States, um, which, uh, for those listening, that was the amendment that granted the right to vote to white women in the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a lot of pushback to that. Uh, you don't have to look very far on the internet to find a lot of um, anti-suffragette cartoons and postcards from the time, which um, are actually horribly relevant to look at today as an American woman. Um, there's one in particular that I recall of a, a woman like holding a sore face that said um, something along the lines of, I put her back in her place, or something like that, like implying that somebody had to hit her so that she wouldn't vote. And then another one, which is actually one of my favorites, shows two women kissing each other on the lips, and it says, oh, they're doing all the fellows' jobs now. So as to imply that once women get the right to vote, we're not really going to need men. That is quite a slippery slope, right? So now you've brought it up, could you take us into sort of modern times? How are you seeing some of these um, sort of issues and uh, thoughts impact what's happening today? Hmm, that's an excellent question, and it's also a horribly depressing one to think about. Um, uh, just considering the realm of popular music, mm -hmm. I think that you, it's totally apparent that there are still women discussed as Bill called vamps. Um, thinking of like Drake's song Hotline Bling, where right. there's the line, um, you used to be a good girl and always stay at home, but now she's um, what's a, uh, going out more and wearing less. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. Oh, <laughs> it's... Um, that's still very much present in popular culture, even if we pretend to, even though, even though we often think that women are much more liberated. Um, so a, a sort of term I've heard before is um, the sort of uh, virgin whore kind of dichotomy when it comes to women, <laughs> that you're either you know entirely innocent and, and pristine, or you are like literally a vamp and a demon. Is that something that you're still seeing, like in the song, for example? Um, oh, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, to return to Vamp songs, I guess. Right, yeah. So one of the things that is interesting is that uh, in one of the performances of the song um, Vamp and Sal, The Sheba of Georgia by Sophie Tucker, who was a massive star during the 20s and 30s, and also just a phenomenal singer, uh, she actually changes the, the words. She uh, changes it from... Uh, the first person or second person point of view to first person, she assumes the role of the vamp 
and she gives it so much power. Like you can tell that she, that the character that she's playing, loves being a vamp. She knows who she is, and she doesn't care about what anyone else thinks. And another interesting thing is that in this song, she doesn't uh, sing about uh, the men at all, except you know the guys that she's vamped. Right. Um, she doesn't dwell on like the pain that she causes them. Rather, she acknowledges that. Um, oh, I'm trying to recall the line. Um, all the uh, all the all the gals hate the Sheba of Georgia. They know um, they know they'll all be forgotten when I come come back vamping through the land of cotton. So she's aware that other women um, do not like her for what she is, but she seems more concerned with these women rather than the men whose feelings she presumably hurts. And concerned with them in the sense that she is hoping to uh, help them out, uh, to bring them to her level, to get them to. Uh... Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say that. I would say more that she doesn't think that these women have any have any reason to not be just like her. Mm -hmm. she, I think she's probably wondering why they don't assume this power. So like a message of empowerment within um, like a genre that was very much sort of designed to kind of put women down. Yes. Well, that's very awesome. So where is next for you in terms of your research? I'm thinking that I would like to look more into popular song from the, from the following decades and actually uh, consider it more with, with regards to um, with capitalism and the socio-political changes following the, the uh, First World War. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if we think about the 1950s, the first thing you think about is like the woman that has to stay at home and cook and wear a dress. Um, so I, I want to look more into how um, pop music reflects that and also the role of women as singers in this and see how um, topics changed with regards to the changing socio-political climate. Oh, excellent. Thanks very much for coming down to Wugsam this year and for sharing your work with us. Thank you very much for having me.